Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll hear what state lawmakers are doing to address the threat of wildfires. And we'll meet the disaster recovery manager that Louisville has appointed to help guide the city's rebuilding process after the Marshall Fire. In the end, we will all get through it as long as we keep a positive outlook on exactly how the process is going and what the outcomes will be. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. In the wake of the state's most destructive wildfire, the Marshall Fire, Colorado lawmakers have introduced a slate of bills related to wildfires and their impact. They include an effort to install a new camera system in remote areas for better fire detection, an insurance bill aiming to get survivors reimbursed more quickly, and another bill would boost the state's ability to investigate the causes of fires. Of course, the focus on wildfires at the Capitol isn't new. Just last year, lawmakers spent the most money they have so far in an effort to prevent blazes like the 2020 Cameron Peak fire. To dig into what lawmakers are hoping to accomplish this session, we're joined now by KUNC's state capitol reporter, Scott Franz. Scott, thank you for being here. Hey, Aaron, My pleasure. Now, obviously, the Marshall Fire, uh, which happened just at the very end of 2021, has really crystallized the urgent need for more action to prevent fires and also to improve the recovery efforts when they do happen. What do you think are the most significant wildfire bills that lawmakers are debating so far? Well, before I answer that, I, I want to start with something that's that's been at the back of my mind as I, I cover this legislative session and lawmakers' responses to it. You know, uh, I'll never forget my visit to the East Troublesome Burn Area in Grand Lake last year. I, I was walking around the rubble of a survivor's home with her, and and she told me that, you know, she and her community weren't given a roadmap or guide on how to rebuild. You know, she had all of these frustrations about you know, what happened after. Um, and I think what's starting to happen this year at the Capitol uh, is lawmakers are sensing more and more that they're not going to be able to stop many of these big blazes. Um, you know, they've invested tons of resources into new planes. They bought the Firehawk helicopter last year that's still being built. But the East Troublesome and now the Marshall fires moved so quickly, you know, it's really stunning to people. Um, you know, now that roadmap for Grand Lake still hasn't emerged, but one of the bills I think is most important um, out there that was inspired by some of these hardships in Grand Lake, um, it would force insurance companies to reimburse homeowners more quickly and at a higher upfront cost. Right now, the reimbursement rate is 30%. This would dramatically increase it to 65, you know, meaning people who lose their homes, you know, won't have to submit that detailed inventory before they get most of the loss covered. And I think that's really meaningful for people, you know, who have um, shared these kind of horror stories about, you know, taking too long um, to get um, reimbursed. Now, 
Finally, the second bill that I think is most interesting um, is one coming from the West Slope that aims to boost the state's ability to investigate the causes of wildfires. Um, you know, I was actually shocked to learn the state just has one investigator dedicated to helping, you know, with all of these probes. Um, and this bill would increase that to seven. Uh, Carrie Donovan of Vale is leading the effort, and here she is talking about why it's needed. The efforts of locals are admirable and committed, but oftentimes they just don't have the background that it takes to investigate a wildland fire, nor perhaps the resources of time, money, or equipment. Well, there's also a package of several bills that focus more specifically on mitigation. What can you tell us about those? Right. You know, I think lawmakers have been really rattled by the last two fire seasons in particular. Um, so we're seeing several more mitigation bills coming out. And there's a growing consensus here that, you know, the, the track record of forest thinning projects um, is not great at all. I, I remember sitting in on a meeting in Fort Collins this summer um, with the state's top firefighting officials. And my takeaway is, you know, their biggest concern was that mitigation efforts were far behind and the state was taking a quote shotgun approach. Um, so I think some of the bills we're seeing are a response to that criticism. Uh, state Representative Lisa Cutter, uh, you know, also shared some data at a recent hearing to reveal, you know, just how far behind the state is. The Colorado State Forest Service estimates that our mitigation efforts are underfunded by nearly $4.2 billion. So this new legislation would spend tens of millions of dollars um, to let cities and towns um, launch long-term forest thinning projects. You know, some places like Chafee County have a sales tax that, you know, is already paying for this. They're going to get potentially more than a million dollars from the state to, to expand those efforts. Um, you know, then another thing I'll note is I keep hearing that you know, it's it's really been wealthier neighborhoods that have been able to afford these projects because they're without state aid. They're they're very um, expensive, and you know the these communities have been able to cover them with HOA fees. Um, you know, so this new effort from lawmakers really aims to to get more communities involved, no matter their resources. Right. Well, as we know, Democrats control both the state house and the state senate. Is there bipartisan support for these bills and and then the associated spending with them? Right. I, I'd say most of them have bipartisan support. You know, they are moving quickly. There are a lot of um, almost unanimous votes. One of the more controversial ones is to spend almost a million dollars on a wildfire uh, month awareness campaign. Now, this is something that that's existing. Um, and Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer of Weld County um, is one of the Republicans who's very skeptical of the plan. Why now? Why didn't all these other plans work? And why are we supposed to put another $820,000 into a national campaign? You know, she says this is a campaign that's been going on since the 1990s. And she's wondering you know, why pour more money into it if it hasn't been effective so far in stopping these bigger blazes. And I think that's a, a point that is important to keep in mind. I mean, the Marshall Fire is the most recent and certainly most vivid example of how essential wildfire awareness and preparedness is. But it still seems Colorado is grappling with historic record-setting fires nearly every year. Is there anything, Scott, that you're hearing from lawmakers this session that feels different than past years. More urgency, maybe? I definitely think there's more urgency here. And, and we're also seeing a much broader response than we have in years past. 
I mean, everything from insurance policy to prevention to suppression. I mean, they're they're tackling almost every aspect of it, um, you know, even down to providing mental health services for the firefighters who are risking their lives, um, you know, out on the fire lines. Uh, there's also a brand new bill that I think is interesting, aiming to jumpstart a new wildfire camera program. Uh, this is something that's been pioneered in California, um, where a series of cameras have been used to to quickly detect blazes. Um, you know, they're actually replacing a lot of these fire watchtowers that in some places are still being manned by people, you know, who must enjoy some sense of solitude to be out in the wilderness. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the broad response is different. I also think that, you know, there's mention of climate policy coming up and, and trying to kind of tackle the bigger picture um, in ways that we haven't seen in, in past sessions. Right. Well, lastly, Scott, what is happening next with the legislation? Well, many of them have already cleared their first votes uh, and are on track to being signed into law, uh, most likely here in a few weeks. Um, That money should start going out, you know, as soon as this summer. Um, But we're also still waiting to see perhaps some bigger climate related bills that I just mentioned um, that will be introduced in response directly to the Marshall Fire. A lot of what we've seen so far, you know, was was coming out of the East Troublesome Cameron Peak fires. You know, they're laws that have been in the works for um, many months. But, you know, I think people are still, um, you know, trying to figure out the best way to respond to something like the Marshall Fire. There's questions of, you know, should neighborhoods on the front range be required to build with stronger, more fire-resistant materials. I think you could see building codes come up. Um, so we'll have to stay tuned. You know, we're still very early in this session, and um, this will be one of the most important topics I cover. Absolutely. Scott Franz is KUNC's state capital reporter. You can keep up with his reporting at KUNC.org. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. As lawmakers work the legislative angle to support those recovering from wildfires in the state, others are working more directly in the recovery effort. Following the Marshall Fire, the city of Louisville appointed a new disaster recovery manager who's been tasked with securing funding and aligning other resources. We'll get his thoughts on the recovery process a bit later in the show. Almost one year after 10 people were killed at a grocery store in Boulder, that building has been redesigned and has reopened for shoppers. As KUNC's Lee Patterson reports, despite what happened there, the return of King Supers is a positive moment for a community that's been dealing with disaster after disaster. This is the third time Harold Fielden has been shopping since the store reopened last week. He's returning his cart after popping in for some soda, but... I was in there for an hour because I know I know one of the managers and there's a guy who works in the health food stuff who obviously hadn't seen anybody for a year. Ran into him and then another friend and everybody's just wandering around chatting. So it's really cool. This particular King Supers will turn 50 this summer. Harold has been coming here for 40 years. All the people around here in the neighborhood have been coming here forever. It's like a neighborhood store. Now, a security vehicle is parked out front guards hang out inside. Were you um, worried at all going in for the first time after what happened? And just kind of a little, I don't know if the word twinge is the right word, but like a little twinge walking in the door. But this once when I walked in, you know, we were fine. It was just, you know, it's weird. 
Fielden and his wife knew some of the people who were killed last March. They included employees and shoppers, as well as a police officer who was a father of seven. The incident devastated the community. And then, of course, you have the double whammy, as you know, between this and the fire. The area has withstood multiple disasters over the past two years, from the pandemic to the shooting. And then, on the morning of December 30th, the Marshall Fire destroyed over a thousand homes. I, I was really lucky we didn't have to evacuate, but I could, I could see the flames from my bedroom window. Parker Hubler and other shoppers were still shocked by the fire, which burned just a few miles from this King Supers. Like, I grew up here and nothing ever happens. Stuff on the news is about, like, hiking trails. I don't know, like, there's nothing happens here. And then all of a sudden in the past two years, just, like, it's been insane. This store opening up is a positive moment amid difficult times. Sun pours in through the skylights. A large mural of the Flatiron spans the entrance. Bolder, stronger signs dot the parking lot. After the shooting happened, Hubler wasn't sure the store would ever come back. And so I think it's really good that they chose to redesign it and reopen it and kind of say, okay, like we're still here, like we'll make it a new place and make it beautiful and, you know, welcome everybody back. Everybody, including many of the original employees of the Table Mesa King Supers, about half chose to return. Mike Engelhart is one of them. I'm an assistant deli manager, so it's just uh, fighting through the chaos to close the deli and, you know, keep it clean, organized. He's on his way in to start his shift, carting in some chicken tenders from the parking lot. Engelhart chose to come back because he loves the people he works with. While the store was closed, he would meet up with some of the deli workers for breakfast, usually at a nearby pancake place. These days, he tries to think back on the good times he had with Denny Stong, a 20-year-old employee who was killed. Every, every Wednesday, you know, he'd be coming in, Mike, 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 what day is it? <laughs> Making jokes about hump day, copying a popular Geico ad. So I just, I think about it and I just laugh, you know. Engelhart copes with what happened by staying busy, fixing up cars and motorcycles. He really likes the store redesign. He thinks about it as a new chapter. But uh, yeah, I think it's great. I think just like the fires, you know, no matter what the struggle is, people are going to rebuild. And uh, it's a sign of strength you have to. The King Supers rebuild isn't quite complete. A remembrance tree garden built on the west side of the parking lot is set to open this summer. Ten trees will be planted, one for each person who was killed. Lee Patterson, KUNC. Colorado edition from KUNC. As we approach two months since the Marshall Fire, community leaders are still working to understand the breadth of destruction from the flames. One of those is Peter Gibbons, the new disaster recovery manager for the city of Louisville. Peter, who started his new position in January, comes to Louisville with a background in disaster recovery. Most recently, he was the city of Longmont's flood recovery manager for the September 2013 floods. Gibbons is technically still an employee of the city of Longmont. He's working for the city of Louisville through an intergovernmental agreement that allows Longmont to share him with Louisville on a full-time basis. And Peter Gibbons joins us now to talk about his role and how his experience dealing with the 2013 floods informs his fire recovery work in Louisville. Peter, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, and thank you for having me. 
I want to get into your new role as Louisville's disaster recovery manager in just a bit, but I want to talk about your background first because you bring some unique experience with you to this position. Most recently, you were the flood recovery manager in Longmont for the 2013 floods. Can you remind us briefly what happened in September of 2013? So in September 2013, uh, the city of Longmont and the Front Range received uh, more than a year's worth of rain in just a few days. So all of the water that was falling in the mountains above the towns and cities uh, that are along the Front Range of Colorado received, um, you know, so much rain that it inundated all of our public infrastructure and all of our uh, river corridors and everything. So. Um, yeah, the damage uh, that came through there ended up costing the cities along the Front Range millions and millions of dollars. Um, and the city of Longmont uh, fielded more than $150 million worth of damages to public infrastructure during that event. What did you do as a flood recovery manager? So flood recovery and disaster recovery managers are becoming a little bit more commonplace in disaster recovery uh, in part to help with the navigation of complex resources for things like public infrastructure. So working with organizations like FEMA and uh, HUD, you know, these are common uh, federal agencies that we work with to port resources in to help uh, do disaster recovery. So uh, my primary role for Longmont was to uh, help line up those resources behind projects to help rebuild the town's infrastructure uh, more completely and with adequate funding to make sure that those uh, disaster recovery projects could be done completely. Right. What was it like to assist with and then actually see the recovery in Longmont happen in real time? So disaster recoveries, uh, they, they always start off feeling very slow and then they ramp up in speed and intensity and uh, for a lot of areas, uh, consequence. So being able to watch the uh, a town's infrastructure come back together um, and then all the added benefits that we can build into a disaster recovery to help prevent damage uh, from people and businesses and park spaces um, in the future uh, is an incredible benefit to being a disaster recovery manager having a hand in being able to help put together uh, a whole community again is a pretty amazing process can imagine. Well, how did you come to this position in Louisville? Yeah, so I um, was with the city of Longmont and uh, took a brief tour outside of public service. And uh, as soon as the fires happened, uh, my name started coming up. And I also uh, was very interested in reaching out to Louisville. So uh, through a hiring process, I ended up getting pulled uh, over to Louisville to be their disaster recovery manager. Well, I know you just started in January. Where are you beginning this process and what are you working on now? What we're trying to do right now is get uh, all of the parks and open space and any of the damaged infrastructure um, uh, aligned with resources from FEMA. So we're directly working with FEMA right now to try to document all of those damages. There's also some insurance involved uh, for some of those damages. So we're working on getting... Um, all the pieces and parts in place to help make the rest of the disaster recovery go well. Sure. Um, when will you know kind of how much damage the Marshall Fire caused to city-owned things like parks or sewer lines? 
Yeah, so uh, city staff in Louisville are working very, very quickly and tirelessly to identify all of those damages. So we go through a, a pretty lengthy process in disaster recovery of damage assessment and then working on breaking some of those damages out into um, insurance type damages versus uh, FEMA public infrastructure or other federally funded or other funding source uh, damages. So. Uh, that's really where we're starting with uh, with that process. And of course, we can't get the images of destroyed homes and buildings from our minds, but I'm wondering if there are any especially um, beloved parks or trails or buildings that are significant that you know of being damaged. Well, so we have a list of uh, damaged facilities that we're looking at right now. Um, some that people don't generally always think about are things like water treatment plants. So we have a complete list that we're working on building right now that shows exactly what was damaged in Louisville. Um, and then we will work on trying to connect resources for getting those buildings uh, repaired. So there's a there's actually a long list of buildings that we're working through right now. And I'm not sure that I could call out one individual one over others. Well, I'm so curious about your experience handling the Longmont flood recovery and, and how that informs your approach to the Marshall fire recovery in Louisville. So I think the Longmont floods taught me about, really taught me about the complexity of disaster recoveries and the importance of maintaining positive relationships with all of our partners throughout the process. So um, disaster recoveries come together with an amazingly complex web of funding agencies and partners and nonprofit organizations. Um, and so I would say that managing those relationships is really one of the primary keys to making sure that the next steps go really well. Uh, also making sure that we are performing our disaster recovery in such a way that it makes it so that we can create the most robust recovery possible for the community um, while also maintaining uh, our budgets to do the things that we normally do and keep our daily operations up and running. So um, just being able to manage that complexity um, also with a very positive face and outlook on how to make the process go as well as possible, I think are some core takeaways. Sure. And when you talk about a robust recovery, I mean, what does that look like in practical terms? Yeah. So what we generally want to see in a disaster recovery is um, a, a very clear description of what the damages are, followed by very clear resources that will help put those those damaged pieces of infrastructure back in place. And when I speak generally about infrastructure, I'm talking about parks and open space and golf courses and trails, um, even parts of our water and sewer systems, water conveyance. Um, I know that was kind of a dizzying list, but those are the kinds of things that we want to see completely recovered. Um, by the end of a disaster recovery, uh, we would ideally want to see the um, the community return to the state that is as good or better than it was in before the disaster event occurred. Well, I understand you live in Longmont currently, but Louisville is actually your hometown. What has it been like for you to see the damage from the Marshall Fire? So I think that the damages from the Marshall Fire are especially shocking because um, I went to Cole Creek Elementary uh, which was uh, right on the border of what we were seeing on uh, some of the news coverage. Um, 
I, when I grew up in the, in Louisville, I never anticipated that I would end up um, jumping in to try to help with uh, this disaster recovery or even seeing the levels of damage in that area that, that we're seeing. So um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting to see it from afar, but to have a very close tie to it um, as it evolves. Lastly, I'm wondering if there is one important thing that you have learned or one important takeaway um, about helping a city recover from a disaster like the Marshall Fire. I think one of the most important takeaways that I've seen from working multiple disasters is that one of the most important things to keep in mind is that uh, we will get through the disaster recovery process and we will get through it very strongly. We're in a very active and intelligent area for being able to recover from these types of incidents. Um, The people who are working tirelessly at the local governments, nonprofit organizations, um, all of our volunteer organizations and agencies, everyone coming together to help, these are all pieces and parts that will help the community recover from this from this incident. And uh, in the end, we will all get through it as long as we especially keep a positive outlook on exactly how the process is going and what the outcomes will be. Well, I remember after the 2013 floods, the word resilient kept popping up more and more in discussions. Is that something you see in your work too? Yeah, definitely. So resiliency is is something that we are constantly focused on in disaster recovery. Um, in recovery, we want to see the community come out stronger on the other side of it. So anything that we can possibly do to make that uh, that feeling of strength and accomplishment happen by the end of a disaster recovery would be a key sign of success. Peter Gibbons is the new disaster recovery manager for the city of Louisville. Peter, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, and thank you for having me. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, there's been growing attention on the ways that traditional news coverage has harmed communities of color through skewed crime reporting or through reporting that has endorsed or overlooked violence against Black communities. We'll explore recent calls to acknowledge and address this harm on tomorrow's show. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 